Amen. Please be seated. I love at the end of worship when we all feel like going, woo! Like, I love that. Like, that is, you should, that's a shout out for God. Woo! That's like, that's what he wants to hear. Hi, again. Wow, all right. Thanks for coming back to, for our uh, second week, week two in our series starting point. You remember last week, some of you? You guys remember? Thank you, Steve. We talked about the way that everything starts somewhere. Everything has a starting point, including our faith. And we, we talked about the way that some people as children, most people as children, are given some sort of faith foundation. And they're usually given the faith foundation by their parents and or a church that they attend. And they, they learn some simple definitions about God along the way. God exists. That's important. They learn you should talk to God. You should pray. You should ask God for, for what you want. I mean, that's one of the things we learn as kids. And you learn that God rewards good people and he punishes bad people. That's one of the basic things that we tend to learn. And, and people who acquired this, I call it like a basic outline of faith, well, they assume that they had all the faith they'd ever need. That's kind of what you do when you grow up. Other people, as young people, they cobble together their own faith foundation. That's sort of the camp I fall into. And that cobbling together is made up of the things you choose to believe about God and the things you choose to not believe about God based upon your own observations and your own logic and your own reasoning and your own assumptions. So we all kind of get that exposure as children, but then something happens. We grow up. And before we know it, life starts showing us the holes in the things that we thought we knew. Life reveals the gap between what we've previously been taught about, you know, about God or the things that we on our own have discerned about God. But then we see what we experience as adults. So, for example, if you grew up in a Christian home, you are likely told that Jesus loves all the little children, all the little children of the world. If you're closer to my age, you remember the song. I had the song for you. I don't have it up there, but I have the song for you. It, listen, that song was a Grammy award-winning song in 1970. Do you remember the song? And do you remember how it started? It was just a bunch of little kids. Jesus loves the little children. You've heard it? All the little children of the world. It's a cute kids' choir. I remember hearing it when it first came out. But it's funny, I had no idea it had anything to do with God. Isn't that? I know. Well, I wasn't paying much attention, I guess. But I didn't know. But he mentions God. He talks about God. I didn't have a clue that had anything to do with God. But when we become adults and we experience the real world, we, we notice that the song seemed a little bit too hopeful. You know, it just seemed like all roses and apples and sunshine. And we would learn the world wasn't really like that. And we got confused. And then we got that... Same confusing vibe when seeing many other of the God descriptions we were taught, they seem to come up short. And so as more time elapses, the foundation that we received for our faith, but when we were children, begins to crumble under the pressure and under the weight of adulthood. So somewhere along the way, we sort of drift off. We we kind of get away. We're not mad at God, and we're not mad at the church, and we're not even sure we quit believing what we believed. But we woke up one day and thought, well, that's not all that important anymore. And because of that, we decided here at the church to do a series to help you hit the restart button and ask the question, 
what would the Christian faith look like for an adult? What would it look like for an adult to be able to restart their faith in God? And that's why we're here in this Starting Point series. When it comes to faith, becoming an adult can be a total game changer. When we arrive at adulthood, we find ourselves exposed, typically for the first time, to some very traumatic circumstances. Life is traumatic. And when we become adults, we, we see the trauma more clearly. If your parents have been protecting you from it, which parents, as parents, we do, we're pretty surprised when it happens. As adults, for example, we're introduced to the reality of, of death because typically you'll attend some funerals, family or friends or colleagues, and you start to question things. Adulthood also shifts our focus from our own lives exclusively, which is pretty much when you're young, you're thinking about yourself, 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 yourself. And when you become an adult, you start to realize there are other people out there. And, and you start to think, well, gosh, was all that stuff I was taught about God true? Is there, is there any way I can know that it's true? And the answer you might have received if you'd asked that question as a child was, it's true. You know, it's true because the Bible says. If you've been in a church before, you've heard that. Well, the Bible says. Well, the Bible says. Well, the Bible says. But as a grown-up, you go, that leaves me wanting a little bit. It doesn't feel adequate. So if I were to say to you, okay, I'm going to help you restart your faith. Now, the Bible says, well, if you didn't really find yourself convinced about the Bible beforehand, that's not going to be helpful. You may be tempted to go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Let's not start there. Because that's where my childhood faith started, and it didn't hold up. It didn't hold up under the pressures and, and realities of adult life. So don't just give me, the Bible says, because also I'm going to say back to you, well, you know what the Bible also says. And then you're going to run through all the horrible things that you have now heard happened in the Old Testament. See, when we read the Old Testament and we don't know what to do with it, and we don't know how to reconcile it to the New Testament, we get very confused because the God in the Old Testament, we, we kind of think of as a different God, which he's not. But the God in the Old Testament was doing something very specific to his chosen people, to the nation of Israel. He was training them. He was raising them. But we don't see how it all fits together. So we go, the Bible says a lot of things I don't want to believe, and I'm an adult now. Don't start there. So we're not starting there. We're not starting there because the Bible says is really not an adequate starting point for many adults. And this is where we landed in last week's message. The, and, and we came up with this notion. The, the saying, the Bible says, was actually never intended to be the starting point for the Christian faith. And then we noticed last week that the good news is we don't have to start there. We don't have to start with the Bible says. We ended last week with the question, so if we're not starting with the Bible says, then where is the starting point? If, if the starting point for the Christian faith is not, is the Bible true, then what is? And we finished up by saying the starting point for the Christian faith is actually the question, who is Jesus? That's the starting point for the Christian faith. That's it. All the other questions are interesting, and they're worthy of asking, and they're worthy of discussing. And if you want to ask and discuss, come see me. We'll talk. I love talking about this stuff, but it's not a starting point. It's not a starting point for the Christian faith. The starting point, as we argued last week, is who is Jesus? By the way, speaking of last week, 
If you weren't here or if you haven't been able to watch it yet, please catch up. You can find it on our app. You can find it on our website, hammockstreetchurch.com. You can find it on our YouTube page, our YouTube channel. Go look that up. Check it out because in a few weeks we're going to come back to our starting point question, who is Jesus? But today we're going to talk about something different. Today we're going to talk about a term that always surfaces in religious conversations. It's a term that is going to come up eventually if you're trying to start over. So today's message is called Coming to Terms. So why don't we pray, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together on this cold morning. Thank you for giving us this warm community, this place where we can get to know each other and and fall in love with each other, and then reach out to our community and teach them about you and about the love of Jesus. So God, as we continue on this morning, please open our hearts and minds so that as we hear your word, we can understand it better, and you can use it to change hearts and minds. God, we love you. We thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, today's term is a word that you have already heard, because it's a word that you grew up hearing about, especially if you grew up in a church, not only if you grew up in a church, but especially if you grew up in a church. And the word is sin. Lock the doors. Now, sin is an interesting word. In our culture, sin is almost exclusively a theological term. You really don't hear the word sin unless you're talking about something related to God. When your spouse does something that upsets you. You don't say to your spouse, you sinned. You don't, you don't say that. The other thing about the word sin in our world is that we have to wrestle with it because regardless of what your religion is or what your beliefs are or what religion you're considering or what faith you're coming out of or what faith you're moving toward, sin is going to be an issue. And sin is a heavy word. And so it's a heavy word and it makes us instinctively resist it or push back against it. Now, I can tell you this. I know a number of people who've actually walked away from their faith in Christ because they couldn't acknowledge that they had a sin problem. It's as if they felt like if they were to confess to having sinned, they'd just be toast. Like, that would be it. They'd be without hope. They'd be beyond redemption, and no one wants to feel that way. Because saying, I've sinned, seems to not leave any wiggle room. It's pretty definitive. So what we've done in our culture is is we've removed that word, and we've substituted another word, a word that's a lot easier for us to handle, a, a softer word, if you will, a word that doesn't even come close to the gravity and the weight of the word sin. Now, before I tell you what that word is, I'm going to tell you I totally understand why we do that. We do it because the word sin seems so condemning. Sin leaves us on the outs with God. Sin leaves us with nowhere to go. I've sinned. The end. That's it. That word is scary. So what we've done is we've replaced the word sin with the word mistake. That's not a good thing. I'm going to tell you why. But let me ask you this. First, how many times have we seen a politician or a public official or a famous person go on television and confess a mistake? They say, I made a mistake. Or I've made mistakes in my life. And we're watching and we're thinking, 
hey, wait a minute. That wasn't a mistake. A, a mistake is something you do on a math test. A, a mistake is when you're driving to a party and you, you end up at the wrong house. That's a mistake. What you did, that was no mistake. But we all use the term mistake. Think about it. If I were to ask you all, don't raise your hands, okay? At home, do what you want. Here, don't raise your hands. But if I were to ask you, without any context, how many of you have made mistakes in your past, I guarantee every single person in the room would put their hand up. Of course we would, because everybody makes mistakes, right? How do we know that? We know because everybody makes mistakes. We know because nobody's perfect. But if I were to come in here without any context whatsoever and say, how many of you have sinned recently? You're going to hesitate before putting that hand up. You look around the room, see who's here, anybody I work with, anybody who knows my parents, right? You're going to do that. You're going to hesitate before shooting your hand up because there's something dire about the word sin. So what do we do? We replace it with the word mistake, and we have to stop doing that. It is not the same. You see, when you think about it, The cause of a mistake is insufficient knowledge. I didn't know enough. I didn't know the right things. I didn't know where things were, so I made a mistake. But you know that you've used the term mistake to talk about something that wasn't born out of insufficient knowledge, haven't you? Now, I'm going to pick on this a little bit. We're going to unpack this a little bit just to emphasize the point. Because the truth is that, in fact, sometimes we make mistakes on purpose. See, we've all seen people come on television and confess to some multi-year-long mistake, haven't we? Is it even plausible that you can make the same mistake for years on end? And then at the end, when, when, when you've been caught, say, well, it was a mistake. It's not plausible if you're trying to be honest, okay? Now, some people go so far as to plan their mistakes. And some people have developed a routine for their mistakes, I wait till everybody leaves the house, get on the computer, whatever. Some people have a stash for their mistakes. But is there such a thing as a premeditated mistake? And, And then what about this? Sometimes we make a mistake and then we make it again and again and again. What what do you call a mistake that you make over and over and over again? Or worse, what do you call a person who makes a mistake over and over and over again? Do you call that person a mistaker? See, mistake doesn't cut it, does it? There's clearly something else going on that's worse than a mistake. You know, it's easy to correct a mistake. I'm going back two streets, then I'll take the right. I won't make that mistake next time. And we correct mistakes, right? You correct mistakes. But the issue is, even though you you can correct a mistake, you can't correct you. I can't correct me. We're the problem. And we're tough to fix. Admit it, historically, you've had a really hard time correcting you, haven't you? One of the toughest things in life that you have to figure out is, why am I not able to do the things that I know I should do? And and why am I unwilling to do them? Or why do I resist the idea of embracing the fact that the problem might be a me problem and not a them problem? And you've tried. You've tried to fix you. And your spouse, if you're married, has tried to fix you many times. And if you have kids, you've tried to fix your kids. And maybe you've even tried to fix your friends. But everybody keeps on doing the same things over and over. 
And that has led to dire consequences. Sometimes it blows up a marriage. Some people have blown up their job because of themselves. Some people have taken on a whole lot of debt that they know they shouldn't have taken on. And then, and this is, I think, one of the weirdest ones. You know those people who go through this period where they're doing really, really, really well? I'm sure it's nobody in here. Not even me, of course. But, you know, those times where you're able to be good and behave well and abstain from whatever your issue is for a while, but then you just get this overwhelming feeling, this overwhelming desire to go ahead and do the thing that you've been so successful not doing. And you do it because you think to yourself, hmm, you know, I haven't done that thing in two weeks. I owe myself one. Some people keep on doing that. All to say this, you can't chalk all that up to, well, nobody's perfect. I made a mistake. Perhaps we have a deeper problem. Perhaps, perhaps sin is our problem. Do you want to know something? This is interesting. Jesus didn't talk about mistakes. Jesus talked about sin. And when he talked about sin, he talked about sin particularly as it relates to relationship. And he said what all of us have experienced, that essentially our sin is the thing that separated us from our relationship with God. And our sin is also the thing that separates us from our relationship with others. Sin breaks relationships. And if we're ever going to start over with God or to start with God for the first time, we're going to need to admit that we're not just mistakers, but rather we're sinners. Think about it. If you've ever broken a relationship, it's because you or somebody else in that relationship did something that shouldn't have been done. And that's why Jesus talked about sin, to engender restoration, not condemnation. Isn't it interesting? Because when we think sin, we tend to think only condemnation. When we hear the word sin, our thought is, "Mm, I don't like to talk about sin. It it makes me feel icky. It makes me feel bad about myself. But in Jesus' economy, we have to talk about sin. Because Jesus won't get us restored until we're willing to accept the fact that we're not just mistakers. In reality, we're sinners. And here's what Jesus knew. Jesus knew that as long as you think you're just making mistakes, you will never seek the thing that you need the most to bring restoration. Okay. So if sin breaks relationships, what restores relationships? What restarts relationships? Well, to answer that question, I want to first look at a few illustrations, and then we'll talk about how Jesus did it. All right? You still with me? Good. Here we go. So your spouse does something that was just wrong, whatever that is. And you confront them and you say, you, you confront them and you say, you've done something wrong. And they go, oh, okay, sorry. How restores your relationship after, <sighs> okay, sorry. Not very, right? Do we go, okay, whew, now everything's good. No, we don't. We don't do that, do we? Or you confront your child. And if you have a child and you understand how this works, you catch them. They know you've caught them. You told them not to and they did it anyway. And you catch them and they go, all right, all right, all right. 
<gasps> Sorry. I mean, I don't know any kids who do that, but I've heard. I've heard that kids do that. Now, as a parent, is that enough? What? Do we, do we go, oh, 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 you said the magic word. <gasps> Sorry. All right, get in the minivan. We're going to Disney. Do you do that? No. Why not? Because they've merely acknowledged, okay, I made a mistake. And since it's only a mistake, I know that the only thing I have to do is say the word sorry for the mistake. (sighs) Can we move on now? I mean, that's what it is. But something in you knows you can't move on because (sighs) sorry doesn't restore a relationship, does it? As long as you think you're a mistaker, you'll never seek forgiveness. Because mistakes don't require forgiveness. Because a mistake is just, is just lack of information or even bad judgment. You don't have to forgive someone for making a mistake. That's why when someone says, okay, sorry, they think, okay, we're back. And you're like, no, <laughs> you considered it a mistake. But it damaged our relationship. See, we want the relationship to be restored. And the only way for a relationship to be restored is for the offending party to acknowledge and embrace the fact that they committed an offense. Sorry isn't enough. Something else has to happen. Somebody has to look you in the eye and say, I'm sorry because I was wrong. And it wasn't a mistake. I did it on purpose. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came along and ushered in a solution to this very human problem. And it was a solution that no one had ever seen or heard of before. Jesus came along and he said, your heavenly father wants you to be restored to him. And the only way to be restored is to seek forgiveness. And the only reason you'll ever seek forgiveness is if you realize you didn't simply make a mistake but that you sinned. The only way that you're going to be restored is to seek forgiveness for that sin. And you're not going to seek forgiveness until you acknowledge the fact that you have sinned and you are a sinner. But to that, Jesus adds, but don't freak out here. Sin isn't the end. Sin can actually lead to a more important end. And here's what Jesus did. Jesus taught about sin, not by minimizing it, but rather by using it to explain just how damaging it is for God's people. He came along and said, in essence, you think you've done just a few bad things? Actually, you have no idea how bad you are. So let me tell you. And then he raised the bar so high that everybody went, we are doomed. Help. And once they acknowledged that they were doomed and needed help, Jesus said, I've got some great news for you. I'm here for the doomed people. In fact, I'm only here for the doomed people. In fact, I'm not here for you unless you're doomed. Is anybody here doomed? And then he said, God loves doomed people. But people won't experience that love of God until they acknowledge that they're doomed. All right, so now here's how he actually said it. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teacher of the law. So what he's saying is this. Unless you are as perfect as the Pharisees tell you that they are, not that they are, but that they tell you they are, that they act like they are, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this, of course, caused everybody in the audience to kind of go, oh, no, we're not as holy and righteous and perfect as those Pharisees. We're all doomed. But Jesus continued, verse 21. You've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And the people heard that, and they go, yeah, 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 we know. Thou shalt not murder. Jesus, we just want you to know we've never murdered anybody. But Jesus responds, hang on, I'm not done yet. Verse 22, but I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to that same murder judgment. See, Jesus is raising the bar here. Essentially, he's telling them anybody who's guilty of anger is the same as being guilty of murder as far as God is concerned. And you will face the same judgment to which the crowd reacted in unison. Wait, what? What what was that? I mean, do you see it? Jesus is saying, yeah, if you've ever felt like murdering someone. If that's where you are in your relationship with people, you're going to face the same judgment as if you'd actually carried it out. They must have just been just, you know, and before they could catch their breath, he kept going. He wasn't done. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. And they're like, okay, okay, haven't done that. But Jesus continued. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, to which the crowd probably went, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Who hasn't done that? We live in South Florida, for gosh sakes. Jesus went on. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus went on and on, ultimately condemning the whole group, all of them, sinners. He raised the bar so high they must have thought, there is just no winning with this guy. What's the point of even trying? And with that, Jesus said, that's why I'm here. Because it doesn't end with sin condemned. It goes from sin to condemned to a realization that I need to ask for forgiveness to God will forgive you and restore you. But you'll never be restored to God until you acknowledge that you need to be restored to God. And mistakers can't be restored because they think they don't need anyone. They think they can correct themselves. Now, to illustrate how this principle works in practice, how this restoration works in practice, now we're going to look at an actual event that was recorded in the Bible. So remember, I started off by saying the Bible says isn't good enough, so I'm not saying the Bible says is why you should. I'm saying, read the, let's read this story together in the Bible. That's a representation that tells us what actually happened, and you will see how the principle works. So here we go. We go on to John's Gospel, John chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, and he sat down to teach the people. Verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, so that's basically the scribes and the Pharisees, brought in a woman caught in adultery, caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So this is not symbolic adultery. This is like actual adultery. And then they continued, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Stone, by the way, doesn't mean you throw little pebbles at her. It means you kill her with big rocks, okay? So we're supposed to kill this woman, Jesus. What do you say? 
You got that? They said, Jesus, she deserves to be stoned. What say you? Now, here's what Jesus does. Jesus bends down. He starts to write on the ground with his finger. Much ink has been spent and spilled trying to determine what it was that Jesus was writing with his finger. And the answer is, we have no idea. And we can't know. It's not in the Bible. What I always suggest to people when we hit one of these places is write that down in your little notebook. Add it to your list of questions you're going to ask God when you're facing him when you get to heaven. Okay? We go on in verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. All right. That's all it says. That's it. Now, just like texting... You can't tell Jesus' tone here, and you can't see Jesus' facial expression, and we don't know if he said anything else, but it is pretty clear that Jesus was quite successful in shaming, intimidating, or scaring some of the crowd into some very deep self-reflection. How do we know that? Because of verse 9, at this, those who heard what Jesus just said began to go away one at a time. You can just picture the scene. I like that it's described one at a time. You just see him leaving from the back, slowly, just ducking out, one at a time. The older ones first, because they got it quick. They understood. They've been around a while. But it, eventually, everybody left until Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And once Jesus was alone with the woman, he wraps up the encounter. Now, pay attention to how he does it. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one stayed to condemn you? She looks around. She says, no. No, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. He says, I don't condemn you. Now get out of here and don't do it again. You sinned. You were caught. I don't condemn you for it. But stop it. Cut it out. Because that's what Jesus does. As it turns out, Jesus isn't out to crush sinners. He's out to save sinners. And when you acknowledge that you need to be saved and you need to be restored, Jesus will save and restore you. But there can't be any restoration without that acknowledgement of sin ever, ever. It doesn't ever work any other way. Now, Jesus spent a lot of time teaching this lesson. He taught it to people who thought they were so bad that they had no hope of heaven. And he also taught it to people who thought that they were so good that they had no worry about heaven. Jesus knew that neither of them understood. So he told three more stories to illustrate the fact that God saves doomed sinners. God saves lost people. You may have heard these if you've been around the Bible a little while. He told the story of the lost sheep. He told the story of the lost coin. And then he told the most well-known of those three stories. He told the story of the prodigal son. Now, I'm going to summarize the story of the prodigal son for you. It's found in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 15. Now, before we go on, I need you to remember it's a parable. And a parable is a made-up story to teach a real lesson. Okay, so parables are somewhat limited in their usefulness. You can't take the made-up story and apply every aspect of it to other things in, in what God is doing. You can't do that, but it's going to teach you a real lesson. So here in this story of the prodigal son, Jesus is showing how God understands the reticence, the hesitance of people to see their own sin. And Jesus understands their need to consider themselves mistakers and not sinners. So here's the story. One day, 
a young man, went to his father and said essentially, hey, dad, I wish you were dead. Because if you're dead, I can collect my inheritance already. That's how inheritance works. You can write it down, but it doesn't kick into operation until the person who wrote it down dies. So the son says, so how about we pretend that you've died so I can get my money? That's really what he said. Now, by the way, also understand this. Under the law, in a two-son family, it's a patriarchal society, the oldest son, the elder son, is entitled to two-thirds of the father's estate, and the younger son is entitled to one-third of the father's estate. The older son gets a double portion. You do the math if there's more kids, but this is in a two-kid family. But it only kicks into action upon the death of the father. Now, you need to know at the beginning that the question alone would have been absolutely scandalous. It's absolutely scandalous for a son to demand such a thing from his father. That does not show respect to your father. Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have your money. So when, he, when they heard the story, the crowd probably went, <gasps> you know, they gasped, they clutched their pearls and they gasped. You know the story, right? So the boy leaves, he spends, loses or wastes all the father's money. And before long, he comes back, he returns. Because while the sun was away, it dawns upon him, boy, I really messed up. And, and the sun came back and he made a speech. And remember that in telling the story. So remember, it's a story. Jesus is giving you the exact words from the person saying it so you understand the point. Jesus is putting words in the mouth of a fictitious boy to explain the point. So everybody listening to the parable understood that in the parable, the father represents God. And the younger son represented somebody who'd done things that were so bad that there was just no way that a typical father would have allowed the relationship to be restored. But this was no typical father. So listen to the words that Jesus used. Let me go back. Jesus said this, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Okay, so remember, Jesus wrote these words, put them into the mouth of the fictional son, and he wanted you to know it. Do you see what we're talking about? This is where we've been going. The son, in these words, acknowledged his sin, and he acknowledged that his sin had separated him from his father, had severed his relationship with his father. Now, once the son had done that, the father in Jesus' story, unlike an earthly father, the father didn't even get into a discussion with the son about all that he'd done wrong. Or what a bad son he was. I mean, that's what we would do in real life, right? Well, do you realize what you put myself and your mother through? And do you realize what a bad person you are? And blah, blah, blah. We don't see that anywhere in the story. Remember, it is a parable. Okay? That didn't happen. In the story, the father knew that the son was owning his sin. The son had acknowledged the very thing that he needed to acknowledge for their relationship to be restored. And with that, the father said, quick. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So Jesus told this story for the sake of the audience. And, but he, he also told it for our sake. As well, 2,000 years later, here's what he said. My son was all but dead to me. We had no relationship, but now it's back because he acknowledged the fact that he sinned and that sin killed the relationship. He was lost and now he is found. So they celebrated. They celebrated. 
They celebrated the restoration of the relationship, a relationship that wouldn't have been restored if the son hadn't finally come to his uh, senses and acknowledged, I'm not just a bad money manager. I'm not just a mistaker. I've sinned against heaven and against my father. And his dad said, now we can celebrate because the relationship has been restored. So when you think about Jesus, If you're considering starting over, you need to think about sin. But you need to think about it not as the path that will lead you to condemnation, but rather as the pointer to a relationship with God. Because recognition of sin is the thing that paves the way to restoration. Jesus was pretty clear about that. He desperately wants us to embrace who we are so that we can become everything he wants for us to be. And before we can restore a right relationship with God, we need to own the fact that it's our sin that separated us from him. See, that makes the way back to God start with an acknowledgement of our sin and a plea for his forgiveness. And God promises to restore us when we'll do that. That's Jesus's message. The first step in restoring our relationship to God is to make sure we understand what ruined that relationship in the first place, to make sure that we understand the importance of coming to terms. Now, I know that the easy thing to do today, once we're done, would be to make a yummy sound. Mmm. Nod your head in agreement, and then to leave in the same headspace in which you arrived. I hear you, but that's not me. I'm not perfect, but I'm really trying hard. I'm not a sinner. I'm just a mistaker, and I'm working on that. And I ask you, please fight that urge. Because now you know that Jesus says you're a sinner who needs to be forgiven. Because like the father in the story was separated from his beloved son, our sin has separated us from our beloved God. But as his creation, as his image bearers, God wants something else for us. God wants to have a party. And the only way he's going to have that party, the only way he's going to celebrate is for you to come back. And you can't come back as a mistaker. You have to come back as a self-aware, full-blown sinner seeking forgiveness. And if you do, God says to you what he said to the woman we just talked about. Stop your sinning. It hurts you. It hurts everyone else. But I don't condemn you because we've been restored. You can't get to God any other way. Now, we're going to leave it here today. Please come back next week. Please watch us again next week so we can continue this discussion. And in the meantime, I'd like you to ask yourself this. Do you resist the idea that you're a sinner? Because once you get to the root of that question, you can take a huge step toward restarting your faith. You got it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for preserving these texts that we've just read. And thank you for their relevance to us today. God, thank you for not condemning us. Thank you for loving us and waiting on us to come to the conclusion that thinking of ourselves as mistakers just won't do it. God, please give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we just heard and then the courage to go out and do it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.